0: we continue this morning in our Christmas series, Cracking uh, Christmas, which you can uh, catch up with uh, online if uh, you've missed one already. For many, Christmas is good news, especially for children, we hope, in and around our families and town, that Christmas is good news. Christmas means parties, parties at school, parties with friends, parties with family, Parties with lots to eat and uh, games to play. Christmas means presents. Presents in a stocking, presents under a tree, presents from Father Christmas, presents from mums and dads and just about everybody else. Christmas means pantomimes, nativity plays, trips to the lights or out with your torch to sing carols. That's just the children. But Christmas can be good news, I hope, for adults too. For we also enjoy parties and presents and pantomimes. And if we don't, our wives tell us we must. So we do enjoy parties and presents and pantomimes. We love special foods and lighting candles, listening to carols, watching the films, being together, simply staying in at night with not much to do. But Christmas is not good news for everybody. For many, Christmas is a time of sadness and pain. Christmas is not good news for workers, when redundancy is looming. It's not good news for families, when coming together exacerbates the same old tensions. When people who have spent the year keeping themselves apart are forced by convention to come together. It's not good news when marriages have broken down, and people are torn, and mums and dads are not with their children this year. It's not good news for those who have lost loved ones this last 12 months, or any year come to that, as the embers of loss flare for us again. It's not good news for those who are forced to spend more than they can afford. And this year in particular, it's not good news if you've discovered that your daughter has been found murdered, you've discovered that she was on drugs and worked the streets, news you know not, you knew not of. It's not good news if you work for the police this year and all leave has been cancelled. It's not good news when fear and suspicion hits our town and our community. Christmas can be bad news. Christmas can intensify, can highlight, can underline the pain, the trauma, the tragedy, the loneliness of life that we've all experienced from time to time. A time for happiness that can make us more unhappy a time when life's wounds are opened again and someone rubs a little salt just across their jagged surface. Today, in our not exactly the most popular Christmas reading ever reading, we are reminded that the Christmas story is not just about slightly dumb but lovable shepherds or handsome, well-spoken men from afar. But the Christmas finds its setting in a very troubled world a world of sorrow and pain, a world that's ugly, abusive and tragic, a world where power is abused and children are murdered, a world just the same as ours. The ruler of the area where Herod was born was a man named Herod. He was an unscrupulous tyrant, securing his own position by a reign of fear. A quick resume of his life records the murdering and the bludgeoning, of butchering of thousands of people not to mention 45 of his economic leaders that he fell out with. His own wife and his two sons were murdered by his own hands. Emperor Augustus uh, cynically wrote of Herod, it was better to be his pig rather than his son. And to ensure that there was mourning when he died, he ordered his soldiers to kill all the notable political prisoners. So as the historian Josephus uh, records him saying, All Judea, every household shall weep for me, whether they wish to or not. He was no cuddly bunny. And now in our reading, the depth of his paranoia and the height of his insecurity become so visibly horrible. When outwitted by the wise men, who had been warned in a dream not to go back to him, he orders the massacre of all the boys under two years of age in the vicinity around Bethlehem in order to ensure that any potential rival is killed very early on. Worthy of note is that if it was not for Joseph's sensitivity to God in listening again to what God was saying through a dream, Jesus would have been killed in that massacre. We're left then with this scene of utter devastation in Bethlehem. No street, no neighbourhood, no family was untouched. There was a tragedy on every corner and only one sound filled the air. Verse 18, if you still have your Bibles open, the, the sound of weeping. The sound, Matthew writes using a quote from the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah, the sound The same sound that had been heard in this place before. A sound so reminiscent of the way they had wept and wailed in Jeremiah's day when the people were dragged off into exile. Hence the quote that he uses. Here again Matthew is saying for this small town the agonising sound of inconsolable grief is heard. Jeremiah in his quote that Matthew then quotes talks of Rachel. Rachel had been dead long ago, way before Jeremiah's time. The idea is that the grief was so overwhelming that both the living and the dead were in great mourning because of what had happened. Rachel's tomb is still just outside Bethlehem. You can go and visit it today. So as Matthew tells the story and comments on it by using this Old Testament verse, He's saying, here we are again, another tragedy, another outpouring of pain. When will it all end? When will it be over? And it's into this world of sorrow and pain that Jesus has come. He has come to our world of sorrow and pain. Jesus, not born in, in a garden of Eden, not for him a life of sunshine, free from tears. He was a babe of Bethlehem. Born in Bethlehem, a town associated with weeping and mourning. Bethlehem, you and I have probably come to believe in, is warm and cosy, where even the stable is clean and fresh. A place somehow tucked away from the harsh realities of life. A town more associated with romance and dreams and sentiment. Maybe the kind of place you go to on your anniversary where you drink coffee in the streets and then you meander around little boutiques alight in the evening stillness. Philip Brooks doesn't help our image. Your little town of Bethlehem, how still we see you lie. Above your deep and dreamless sleep the silent stars go by. I was in Bethlehem ten years ago. There were soldiers and barricades and checkpoints and twitchiness and fear and, suspi- and suspicion. In these last ten years, it's been a lot worse. Bethlehem was and still is an icon of a world that's troubled, disturbed, a world of pain and aching hearts, restless for the peace it cannot find. It's never been the place of peaceful dreams. And now again, Matthew tells us there's weeping in Ramah just like there had been long ago. Yet it was to Bethlehem that Jesus came, to our real world, where life is hard and people are hurting. He entered our world, our experience of trauma. He entered what it is to be human. Since we are human, since we have flesh and blood, he too shared our humanity. The Word became flesh, one of us, and lived right in the middle of the pain and the hurt and the loneliness and the tragedy, the weeping and the mourning. So he knows. He knows what it's like to have a troubled heart. He knows what it is to be misunderstood by friends and family. He knows what it is to experience pain physical pain, emotional pain, mental pain, even spiritual pain. He knows, and in his knowing, he understands. For we do not have a high priest, a Jesus, a God, who is unable to sympathize, to understand our weaknesses. We have one who was tempted, who faced everything like we do, yet without sin. There are many of us here in these four walls that carry great pains and sorrows. We may not be weeping and wailing out in the streets, but within there is the silent cry of our hearts for many things. And I hope for many of us here, you have people around you that you can share those inner cries with, people that you can talk to, who will support you and help you and love you and encourage you. But for all the love and the support you have received, you can still crave someone who really, truly understands. Someone who knows what it's like to be where you are right now. Someone who sees life from your view. It's a liberating thing to find somebody who really knows and understands. I have four kids. I know, I look far too young and fresh-faced to have four kids. You should see my wife, who is more beautiful and radiant than ever, I will quickly add. So having four kids, I've picked up a thing or two along the way. Let me tell you this. I can spot a midwife who has not had children of her own from 40 yards. She says she knows. She says she understands, but she doesn't. How can she? Today, as you wish there was someone who knows, as you crave somebody who really understands, I want to tell you, the God of heaven and earth knows. And he fully understands you. That's why he came. Jesus has been where you are. He has seen life from your point of view. That's why the verse goes on in Hebrews 4 verse 16. Let us then approach this God. Let us approach this throne of grace with confidence because we know that he knows. We know that he understands and in approaching with confidence we will receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. That's why you can walk right up to him and receive everything he wants to give because you know that he knows. You know that he understands. He's not going to push you away. He's not going to offer you some shallow, superficial response. He's not going to be patronizing, pat you on the back and say, there, there, go straight to God. He's been right where you are. He knows exactly what you're about. Discover the Lord of all, knowing the depths of your hearts, because he's seen life from your point of view. Jesus has come to our sorrow and pain. But more, Jesus has come for our sorrow and pain. He's come not just to understand it, to empathise with us in it. He's come for it, to deal with it, to change it, to transform it. What's fascinating, I think, and I hope you'll agree in a minute or two, is again this quote that Matthew chooses to use from Jeremiah chapter You will all know Jeremiah 31 by heart, but just in case you're struggling to bring it to the forefront of your mind, let me tell you that Jeremiah 31 is a fantastically upbeat chapter in the Old Testament. It's full of hope, full of confidence for the future. In fact, of its 40 verses, there is only one gloomy verse out of 40, and it's the one Matthew chooses to quote here. Because Jeremiah 31 is about a plan. A plan that God had always had to bring about a new covenant. A new deal with his people that would turn their weeping into laughter and where their mourning would give way to inexpressible joy. The weeping then of which Matthew speaks He wants to say to all who read his book, this is a weeping that need not last forever. This tragedy, this horror of Bethlehem will not last. It is not the end of the story. This pain and torment is passing away. And God himself, through a new covenant, a new arrangement, a new deal, will bring it to an end. Because when Jesus came... He announced the beginning of this new deal. And the Bible says that when he died on the cross, he said this blood will be for the new covenant. This blood will be for the new deal. And Jesus' coming set in motion God's plan that would not stop until the prophecies at the end of Revelation were complete. A day when he himself will wipe away every tear, when there'll be no more mourning or death or crying or pain, for the old order will have passed away. The fact is, the cries of Rachel are passing. The weeping of Bethlehem will not go on forever. And the crushing cries of your heart are not here to stay either. Because of his coming, our tears will one day turn to joy and our mourning to great laughter. Hallelujah. I've just got to stop and take some breath. Now, this is quite exciting, I think. For a troubled world like ours, this is desperately important things to hear. You see, in the timescale of heaven, weeping may remain for a night, but rejoicing comes in the morning. Hallelujah. Weeping may endure for the night, but rejoicing comes in in the morning. The coming of Jesus has brought God's new deal that will move unrelentingly to the day when weeping is no more, when the weeping of all our hearts, that is the Jeremiah 31 kind of weeping that need not last as we put our trust in God's new deal. I would not be here this morning if there was not a day when all this will be over. A day when lives aren't ruined by drugs. A day when women don't have to work the streets. A day when evil in men's hearts can no longer flourish. A day without grave sites. A grave without intensive care units. A day without bereavement and abuse. A day without violence and fear. A day without war between people and families and communities and nations. A day without illness and handicaps and hospitals and hospices and heart attacks and all that stuff. A day when it's over. Jesus came to make that day possible, to declare that the day is near. His coming marked the beginning of the end of all this heartache and pain. And Matthew understood and he wrote those little words, quoting from Jeremiah, this pain in Ramah, so real, so unbearable, so overwhelming that they refuse to be comforted and who can blame them? This pain need not last hallelujah the beginning of the end is here your pain so real so unbearable sometimes so overwhelming on occasions your pain need not last hallelujah hallelujah for you for me his coming is the beginning of the end of it all and just as proof Look with me at the next couple of verses. Look with me, verse 19. What happens in verse 19? What happens is this, Herod dies. Herod, the icon of all that is wrong with this world. Herod passes into history. He returns to dust. Look at the next verse, verse 20. What happens? The Bible tells us that Jesus lives. Herod dies, but Jesus lives. Herod, whose life is the epitome of this dark world, does not live and cannot outshine the light that was coming into the world. Herod dies, Jesus lives. Think of any darkness you want to think of in our world today, and remember this, Herod dies, Jesus lives. There have always been Herods, There were successive Herods in the early days of the church that tried to snuff out this light that had come into the world. Herod's grandson tried his best. He killed James, the brother of John. He imprisoned Peter, planning to execute him. He became drunk with illusions of his own divinity. But in the end, he was eaten up with worms and died. Nero, another Herod wrapped Christians up in hides to be fed to the dogs. Others he nailed to crosses, still others he tarred and torched to illuminate his gardens. But this Herod died and Jesus lived. As early as 403 AD, even in Rome itself, paganism is left in solitude. By then, every pagan temple in Rome is covered with cobwebs. They who once were the gods of the nations were abandoned under their leaking, lonely roofs, left with the horned owls and other birds of the night. So the story of history goes on. So many powers, so many thrones, so many Herods over the years. And in their time, as they strut their stuff on our global stage, they can seem so menacing, so threateningly powerful, so in control. Think of the Herods of our day the tyrants of our world, so invincible, so unreachable. And remember this, all Herods die. Jesus lives. And as each Herod dies, it's a reminder to us all that the day is coming when Herod will be no more. The coming of Jesus was indeed the beginning of the end. The days of this dark world numbered, the darkness will not win. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness cannot overcome it. Come with me to Church Village, a small community in one of South Wales's valleys. There in the middle of the village is a small Baptist chapel The year is 1911. And watch as a young widow, heaving with grief, walks into that simple chapel frame, behind the coffin of the husband she loved. He had just been promoted to station master in that village, and suddenly, inextricably, he died just aged 32. They had shared such hopes. They had had so many dreams. They had five adorable children, all under eight. But now for this young woman, the future would be harder than she had ever imagined. No social security, no income support, a widow with no job, no occupation, and five little mouths to feed. And now she makes the long, lonely walk down the chapel aisle. Is she angry with God? Who could blame her if she was? Has her faith crumpled? Has the little light of God's love lit from earliest days in the Sunday school back room? Has that light been snuffed out? After some brief scripture, the parson announces the opening hymn. A hymn that she has chosen. No more, much, much more. A hymn that she has chosen carefully, thoughtfully, precisely for this moment. The congregation rise and begin to sing. My Jesus, I love thee. I know thou art mine. For thee, all the follies of sin, I resign. My gracious Redeemer, my Saviour, art thou. And then the killer line for me. My computer's fine. Just listen to this. Then the killer line. There she is. First him, husband in the box before them, five children, then the killer line. If ever I loved thee, my Jesus, tis now. Now. How can she possibly sing words like that? It seemed just yesterday that she'd stood in that same place, all dressed in white, now all is black. What was there possibly about her life and her circumstance to love him for now? And the third verse for me is the most penetrating. I'll love thee in life, I will love thee in death, and praise thee as long as thou lendest me breath. If ever I love thee, my Jesus, tis now. How could she sing? How could she pray? How could she trust? How could she believe? Unless she really knew him, Jesus, the one who has come to us in our sorrow and pain, the one who holds us where we are hurt, who strengthens our weakness, who in the words of another great hymn soothes our sorrows, heals our wounds and drives away our fear. How could she sing unless she knew the one who truly knows? Who really understands. And more still, given the final verse, she must have understood that in the coming of Jesus was the assurance that one day days like these would be over, gone forever, no more mourning, crying, or pain. And so, reaching to God with both hands, she joins the congregation to sing that final verse. In mansions, of glory and endless delight. I'll ever adore thee in heaven so bright. I'll sing with the glittering crown on my brow. If ever I loved thee, my Jesus, tis now. Just before Easter this year, I buried my great aunt, who was the youngest of those five children. And like each of them, she too had loved Jesus for each one of her 95 years. Maybe Christmas is bad news for you this year. Yet the truth remains. It is precisely for those for whom it's bad news that it really is the greatest news ever told. As Paul puts it, the night is nearly over. The day is almost here. Hallelujah.